your Bibles, please, to John chapter 2 tonight. It's a great joy to be with you. Loved hearing the brass when I first stepped in. That was wonderful. Um, I have played the French horn before, and uh, it's been a long time. A few years now. I guess so. Uh, the way I play it kind of proves it. <laughs> But uh, I haven't played it in a while, but I do love the brass. And uh, thank you for your invitation on this uh, Sunday evening. I'll take that up with my wife and see what we have planned. I don't even know. We've got weddings coming and uh, people coming in. I think on Christmas Day, I'm due to be at Logan Airport most of the day, picking up people from Korea. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of how our Christmas is going here. <laughs> so uh, we'll see what uh, the future holds one day at a time. But again, thank you for the invitation. I'll do my best to be there. Um, so John chapter 2, I'd like to read verses uh, 1 through 11 as we start. And you can follow along while I read the passage. It says, In the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. I'm told a firkin is about 10 gallons. That's about 20 to 30 gallons in each of these six water pots of material. Verse 6, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but knew, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Let's have the blessing. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glory of our Savior, and we thank you for these miracles that manifest his glory, so that we can believe that he, Jesus, is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe and have life in his name. Pray that you bless this passage to our understanding, to the grace of help of your Holy Spirit tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of having your word before us in this book. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we live in a world that creates signs uh, designed to glorify things that are actually quite inglorious in and of themselves. If you go to Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, you can find on one of the city blocks a sign atop the street signs that designates the whole block as the George Perry Floyd Square. 
you're visiting that square, you can see painted on the wall, wall of one of the buildings there a mural that has a picture of George Floyd uh, with these um, uh, sun rays coming out of his visage, um, basically protruding from this criminal who glorified him. A new film is out, and I'd commend it to you. It's free on YouTube, actually. It's about the tragic circumstances and consequences of the death of George Floyd a few years ago. It's called The Fall of Minneapolis. And the documentary shows how Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 21 years in prison. After doing his job in an environment in which race baiters, politicians, media pundits, a corrupt judge, corrupt prosecutors, and lying witnesses made justice impossible at his trial. Last week, Officer Chauvin was stabbed 22 times in the prison's library. The film documented the rise of crime in the city of Minneapolis and how that city has lost a third of their police officers, 1,900 to 800 now by now. Again, our world creates signs designed to glorify things that are actually quite inglorious. And as such, these signs tell lies, not the truth. And it takes a courageous documentary every once in a while to actually expose the lies and tell the truth. By way of contrast, the Apostle John has set forth seven signs in his gospel that tell us the truth about Jesus Christ and reveal his glory to us. Our passage records the first of these. If you look at verse 11, it tells us that. It says, this beginning of miracles, or the first of the miracles, did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. That word translated miracles there is a specific word for miracles that could be translated signs. Uh, it's the only word that John uses for miracles. He calls them signs. You, you've heard of signs and wonders. Sometimes miracles are called miracles, sometimes signs, sometimes wonders. John prefers to call them signs. And he uses this word 17 times in his gospel, including in his purpose statement for his gospel in chapter 20. Verses 30 through 31, he tells us this is why he writes the gospel. He says, and many other signs, that's our word, truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And so the first part of the gospel of John has been called the book of signs. Because throughout these first chapters, John uses this word to describe seven miracles that reveal Jesus' glory, which are divine, that, that revelation is given so that we would believe that he is the Christ, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that he is the Son of God, and that we might believe on him and have life in his name. So we have the miracle of our passage here in chapter 2. Uh, number two, there's the sign of the healing of a nobleman's son in chapter four. Number three, the healing of a lame man in chapter five. Number four, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter six. And also in chapter six, uh, number five, walking on water. Number six, the healing of a man born blind in chapter nine. 
And then finally, number seven, raising Lazarus from the dead. Romans chapter 11. All these are called signs that reveal the glory of Christ. The final sign of chapter 20, where Thomas is having such trouble believing, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus himself. After Thomas refused to believe unless he actually saw the sign with his eyes, he didn't want to just be told about it. Jesus rebuked Thomas, didn't he, as he said, put your finger in my hands and your hand in my side. He said, you have believed because you have seen. Blessed are those who have looked in faith. Have you believed? We believe, not because we've seen, but we believe because we've been told. And so what truth, we'll ask tonight, does this first sign reveal about the glory of Jesus which requires us to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and the only source of truth, the only bearer of the name that we can have eternal life. And I'm going to mention four such truths tonight from the passage. Number one, the sign revealed the glory of divine respect for an important ceremony. The sign revealed the glory of divine respect very important ceremony. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. It says, In the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. That is actually a reference to the marriage feast or the wedding ceremony itself. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage, to the wedding. That's the ceremony that we're dealing with here, a wedding ceremony wedding of our youngest son and future daughter-in-law is coming up soon, a week from Friday, actually. Uh, this will be the third that my wife and I have gone through, up close and personal, and uh, we've learned about uh, a few things about weddings, going through these things. Uh, we've learned that they're expensive, for one thing. Uh, they're labor-intensive. They involve a myriad of uh, decisions that can be pressure-packed at times. And uh, for these reasons and many others, we've learned that it's always nice to have a wedding planner. And we were thrilled to learn that my daughter-in-law mother, uh, Deb Andrews, you probably know her, is the wedding planner, I volunteered to be the wedding planner for Kent and Caroline's wedding. So that took a lot off of our plate, and we're very, very happy about that. Now, it's likely that Mary, the mother of Jesus, played a similar role in this wedding. You notice that the text tells us that she was there. And then it says in verse 2 that Jesus and his disciples were called. Mary was there before Jesus and his disciples were called. Uh, there's a, a kind of a difference there, isn't there? And so it may be that Mary was in charge of the refreshments for the big day, which would explain why she feels responsible when the wine runs out, the ceremony. I say all that to simply say this, that Jesus, his disciples, and his mother all support the significance of a wedding ceremony in this passage. In their attendance and in their actions. This is a lot of work for Mary Jesus and his disciples were there in support. You know, there was a day when preachers did not have to remind people that wedding ceremonies are important and worthy of support. 
But today we live in a world that magnifies the vulgar, not the transcendent or the formal, the common, not the unique, the convenient, not the ceremonial. I'm not much of a movie buff, but uh, there are a couple of lines from movies that have stuck with me over the years. One comes from this movie called The Incredibles by Pixar. I think it's rated G, if I'm not mistaken, but it was one of their animated films. And The Incredibles uh, is actually the name of a family of superheroes in this story. And they were basically better than everybody else. They had all these superpowers, and, uh, you know, they were, um, on the g they were the good guys in the story. And there was a villain in the story. And the villain's plan uh, was to use technology to let everybody else be super too, basically. And so he wasn't very super, he didn't have any superpowers, but he was really smart and could put machines together and that kind of stuff and, and uh, fight, the, fight the superheroes. And there's a line in the movie that stuck with me, which objects to the villain's plan this way. It says, quote, if everyone is super, no one will be, end quote. I remember that line and then just one other line from movies. Um, you remember the movie Babe about that little pig that did the shepherding? I don't know if you saw that one. But that farmer looks down at his little pig and he says at the end, that'll do, little pig, that'll do. <laughs> I've often heard the Lord tell me that, you know, after I've tried to do my best and it seemed to come out a certain way. But anyway, um, if everyone is super, no one will be says the movie. I thought that made a good point. Weddings are super occasions. They're special times and involve special traditions because they honor a special covenant. The covenant of holy matrimony between a man and his wife. And so I believe that we can learn from the example of our Savior and his disciples and his mother. That there is in this sign revealed to us the glory very important sign. Number two, the sign reveals the glory of divine promise. The glory of divine promise. Look at uh, verse three and four with me. It says, and when they wanted wine, in other words, the, they ran out of wine at this ceremony. The mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Jesus said unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee Mine hour is not yet come. Kind of a strange conversation between mother and son here. There's a similarly strange conversation in chapter 3. You'll remember when uh, Jesus encounters Nicodemus. And this Jewish rabbi, a ruler of the Jews, goes to Jesus by night, perhaps because he didn't want to be seen by his colleagues on the Sanhedrin to be talking to this controversial rabbi from Nazareth of all places. And so he comes to Jesus by night and he starts the conversation this way. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do the miracles. That's the word signs again in the Gospel of John. No one can do these signs that you are doing unless God is with him. And then Jesus replies, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you must be born again. And in that instant, 
Nicodemus no longer understood what the topic of their conversation was, right? <laughs> he was talking about teachers from God, and all of a sudden Jesus said something about being born again. And his confusion was demonstrated in his next comment, right? Where he says to Jesus, uh, can a man go into his mother and be born all over again? So what's happening in that conversation? Very simply, Jesus was talking about spiritual things, spiritual birth. And Nicodemus was talking about a physical thing, physical birth. And so Jesus explained to him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. I want to talk to you about spiritual things. I think the same thing is happening, actually, when it comes to wine in this passage, um, in this conversation. It's got that same strange feel to it. Like uh, Mary is talking about one thing, and Jesus is talking about something entirely different. So... As one of the hostesses of the reception, Mary comes to Jesus about the lack of wine in verse 3, and she's talking about physical wine that you would drink at a wedding. And we do not read of Joseph's presence in this passage, and commentators agree that Mary is likely a widow at this point in her life. And so the firstborn Jesus and her family has been providing for the needs of the household for some time. And it was perfectly natural for her to go uh, in this crisis moment to her firstborn son, whom she had relied on in this way in the past, because he would know where to buy some wine very quickly for the ceremony. And um, so she goes to him about this. And Jesus' response, I think, must have seemed as strange to Mary as his response to Nicodemus did to the rabbi. Jesus says to her, not, don't worry, Mom, I know where we can get some wine, and I'll go buy it. No. He says, woman, what have I to do with thee? And then he says, mine hour has not yet come. And I think what's going on in this conversation is the same thing as John chapter 3. Mary is talking about physical wine. Jesus is talking about a biblical, spiritual wine in this passage that we read about in the Old Testament. The spiritual wine is a metaphor, a biblical prophecy about the Lord's eternal blessing of salvation promised to Israel. And we see this in passages like Jeremiah 31, verse 12. It says, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd, and their soul shall be as a watered garden, and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Hosea 14, verse 7 says, They that dwell under the shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. And Amos 9, verses 13 through 14 mentions this future wine of blessing of God's kingdom. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. 
and they shall make gardens and eat the fruit of them. You know, I think Jesus understood what his mother was talking about, but he wanted to talk to her about something else. He understood that she was asking him to go purchase more wine, but instead of answering her on that level, he gives her an answer about this wine of prophetic explains to her, we're not talking about the same thing here. What is what this phrase, uh, woman, what have I to do with thee, kind of clues us into that. Basically saying, we don't have anything in common in this conversation. We're going to be talking, I'm talking to you about something other than what you're talking about. And then he says, mine hour has not yet come. The gospel of John, that's the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of his suffering. See, as he talks about this wine, this future blessing of the kingdom, we can't see that without also seeing that his hour is coming. Because he has to go through that hour of suffering to bring the prophetic promise to fulfillment. And so, explains that they're separate topics of conversation using the same word really has nothing in common and points to how he would have to suffer on Calvary to save his people from their sins to give them the blessing promised in the Old Testament of a glorious future the question tonight is will that future be your future are we living for that future wine of God's kingdom rather than the mundane things of this life, like the stuff we use to keep our wedding guests nourished, <laughs> as important as they may be from time to time? Do we see that Christ had to endure an hour of great suffering to give us the wine of his kingdom? The sign revealed the glory of divine promise, a promise of eternal salvation. three, the sign revealed the glory of divine power replacing lifeless religion. Divine power replacing lifeless religion. Look with me at verses five and six. It says, his mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone. Notice what John tells us about these water pots says that they are after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece, again, 20 to 30 gallons each. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom. Let's stop there for a moment. The sign reveals the glory of divine power replacing lifeless religion, powerless religion. If I were to ask you, what is the chemical composition of a water molecule? How many of you would be able to answer that? about as 
much chemistry as I know. H2O, two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen make up the water molecule. And then if I were to note that the chemical composition of a grape is 70-80% water, but then I were to ask you, what is the rest of the grape made up of? How many of you would be able to tell me that? <laughs> me neither. <laughs> I spent a lot of time looking for it, actually. And I guess there are so many organic and inorganic compounds in a grape that I couldn't even find an article telling me how many. They just said there are numerous ones. Um, one article listed some molecule types in a grape that are specifically important to winemaking as uh, sugars, organic acids, phenolic compounds, nitrogenous compounds, aroma compounds, minerals, and pectic substances. Probably mispronounced some of those. <laughs> but uh, they're all plural, all these categories of molecules. So it goes without saying that changing water into wine by filling up water pots and drawing out the liquid is a mighty supernatural miracle of divine omnipotence. Jesus works a mighty miracle in this passage. And John tells us about the glory of his power while showing how it was designed to draw a contrast with the lifeless religion of this apostate Judaism of Jesus' day. The stone water pots were those used for the purification customs of the Jews, John points out in verse 6. One-seventh, the largest section of the Jewish Mishnah, instructed Jews about how to wash things. It contains 126 chapters on the topic. Thirty of those chapters are on how to wash vessels. Four of those chapters are just on how to wash your hands. You thought those COVID signs were irritating, right? <laughs> Aren't you glad we opened a chapters in our Bible tonight? And we're not part of a lifeless religion that is kind of going through chapter 73 of the Mishnah about how to wash things. Hey, we're going to do washing, you know, a, an upholstery chair today. giggle at that, but this religion was real. And into that dead and lifeless religious world, Jesus brings the glory of omnipotence by executing this amazing miracle. Apostate Judaism needed to be changed from these water pots for purification into the glorious future wine of God's promised kingdom has in store for Israel. Yea, verily, for all the families of the earth in the midst of time. Only an all-powerful God could execute such a work, and Jesus demonstrates in this miracle that he is that God. He's going to provide that Blessings of that kingdom are going to be so abundant that they really need 
six 20 to 30 gallon pots full of wine at the end of this ceremony. <laughs> I don't think so. I want us to notice, too, how this omnipotent glory is revealed. He tells the servants to do some things to make this happen, doesn't he? What if the servant said, no, I don't feel like I want to fill up the water pots. It's a lot of water. It's kind of heavy. Everybody's already washed it already. I've got a better idea. Let's just not do it. the servants to do some things to make this happen. Only Jesus could do the miracle, but he chooses to do the miracle through the obedience of these servants. We need miracles in our gospel ministry. We need the Lord to turn dead and lifeless religion into the glory of a promised future through his omnipotent power in the hearts of those that we know but do not yet know the Lord. Can this happen? Mary has the answer in verse 5. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. <laughs> Isn't that good? Simple obedience. Do what he says. Dead, lifeless religion does not listen to what he says, or if it hears what he asks, it refuses to comply. If we want to see the glory of omnipotent power, we must be committed to obey whatever he tells us to do. Paul told the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, that he can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. He can use us water pots, right? <laughs> Servants who know how to put water in a pot. That's our gift. That's our talent. He can use us. Execute omnipotent power to change and transform people. But we have to obey. We have to do what Mary says. Whatever he says to you, whatever he asks of you, you do it. But what is he asking of us that we haven't done yet? And I trust the Holy Spirit will reveal that to our hearts. And then finally tonight, I want us to see that the sign reveals a glory that calls men to faith. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. And here, uh, referring to the ruler of the feast in verse 9, He's speaking to the bridegroom. So the ruler of the feast said unto him, the bridegroom, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. So the sign revealed a glory that calls men to that faith and to believe the way the disciples did. The rule of the feast cracks a joke about drunkenness in verse 10. Uh, that word, uh, have well drunk, 
is uh, very clearly referring to intoxication. And that's what uh, this joke is all about. The idea is that you can serve inferior wine when people are drunk because they won't notice that it's inferior because they're so inebriated. Ha, 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 ha. That's basically what this guy's saying. He was kidding, of course, not calling his fellow guests drunkards at the time, but trying to compliment the host on the abundance and quality of their new wine. Let me say at this point that I'm a teetotaler when it comes to any form of alcoholic beverage, by the way. The wine of this culture, although a substance that could make you drunk, was diluted with water between one-third and one-tenth of wine's natural fermentation strength. And its ability to make you drunk, I'm told, was less than today's light beer. I don't even know how powerful that is, because I think I had one beer when I was like six years old that my grandpa sent us, and it made me feel funny, and I never had another one since. You know, for me, uh, the reason I avoid all alcohol comes really from the book of Proverbs, which has many warnings against the deceptiveness of alcohol and wine, even. Um, one passage in particular sums up the issue for me. It's Proverbs 31, verse 4. It's the advice, the advice of a mother to her son. It says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. You know, I'm a king. In Christ, I am part of a royal priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 tells us. After the order of Melchizedek, the book of Hebrews says, which means king of righteousness, by the way. <laughs> and so I'm a royal priest 24-7. And Proverbs says it's not for kings like me to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, which is even more intoxicating than what the Bible calls wine. So we should not be drinking on the job if we're kings. Now that issue aside, the ruler of the feast misses far more than the virtues of teetotaling in his comments, doesn't he? He misses the glory of the revealed sign. The servants seem to see the sign, but they don't. you don't read anywhere that they believed. Did you notice that? That they saw the sign, but... Not the glory of the sign, even. The disciples, however, saw not only the sign, but also the glory. And so they believed. They believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because he turned water into wine. The Bible says they had light to his name. So believing, may we believe. So those are the truths revealed by the sign to show us the glory I think John wants us to see here tonight. But as I close, I want to share with you a question I asked my congregation this morning about a sign that we have of the glory of our Savior 
Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We practice that as an ordinance of our church called the Lord's Table. We do it on the first Sunday of every month. And I ask my church this. If next January, on the first Sunday of the month, I bring a water bottle with me and I put water into all those little cups in our communion tray. And as I pass that out, it turns into wine like the blood of Jesus and we partake of it would that sign reveal more glory than the sign we practice for years at the first Sunday of every month where we start with grape juice and it just stays grape juice and I didn't give them a chance to answer I said I'm going to give you the answer the answer is no it would not be more glorious. Because glory is not the sign. It's what the sign points to. It's what the sign reveals. And whether it's miraculous or just a simple symbol, like so much of the tabernacle was, the glory is still the same. And we must see it. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. Believing on him, we can expect to drink the wine of the kingdom with him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this sign and most of all for the glory that it points us to. And for the expectation that Jesus wanted to raise our eyes from the need for some beverage to the need of our hearts for eternal life. Pray, Father, that that message, which was his on that day through his mother, would be ours to those whom we love, especially in this Christmas season. Thank you, Lord, that we shall someday experience by sight and not just by faith that glory that you possess and that kingdom that you've promised. We pray this in Jesus' name.